So this is the last of our short series on beginnings, just to remind us, we've been looking at various things. If you're visiting with us tonight, I, I hope that you're not coming into it too cold and that you'll not be uh, at a disadvantage to uh, gain something from uh, the study this evening. But we're coming, we've, we've seen how important and significant these beginning chapters, these early chapters in Genesis are for us. And uh, we've seen again and again that they are shrouded in mystery as well as very revealing to us. We've seen that every word is weighted in these early chapters, that uh, nothing's wasted, and that this account is given to us so that we have that significant and important fundamental understanding of who we are and why we need a Savior, why we need God, why we need uh, Jesus Christ in our lives. In some In some ways, uh, these early chapters of Genesis are a little bit like the black box recorder that uh, um, uh, people will look for when an aircraft has crashed. They look for that black box recorder to find out uh, what has happened, what went wrong, and why the plane crashed. Now, it might not uh, give you all the information that you would look for, there may be a lot of questions that are left even having listened to the black box recording. But nonetheless, it will give some vital clues as to what went wrong. And that is vaguely similar to these early chapters in Genesis. They they begin to help us to understand what's gone wrong uh, and speak about our relationship with God and why that relationship is broken and why Jesus needed to come. And it all fits in so well. And uh, as we saw this morning in in that that song that we learned this morning, that creation speaks of God's glory. It's lost uh, in the sin. It's redeemed through the second Adam, Jesus, and it will be renewed in in glory uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's continuity with it all. And it's not random. It's not out of date. It's not fable. Um, Yeah. I was speaking with Neil last week. Um, Neil was telling me about uh, some author or uh, preacher or speaker who was talking about Jesus and uh, the famous uh, trilogy of responses that we must have to Jesus, the C.S. Lewis uh, responses, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And this uh, author or preacher was saying, uh, and Neil was saying to me through that, uh, him that there's, there's a fourth one now possibly that people need to consider and that is legend liar, lunatic, lord or legend so many people would regard even particularly these early accounts in Genesis as just legend just uh, uh, human stories of beginnings to, to, to keep us uh, going uh, but we recognize uh, something much more significant in this theological account, not a scientific account as we've seen, but a theological account of beginnings. And all I want to do is I want to ask five quick questions and then leave one or two principles with us. But within these five questions and principles are two main things I'm wanting to say. So I hope (laughs) that doesn't sound too confusing and uh, it makes hopefully sense to us. So we have this account of what theologians have come to regard as the fall, uh, the rebellion of humanity against God. And we've seen uh, the significant and important place 
of humanity in God's eyes, the, the image-bearing, the relationship, the love, the honesty, the openness, the nakedness, which we, we didn't really speak much about, was that kind of sense of, of nothing uh, there to hide, a, a complete, honest, and open relationship with one another and with God. Five questions very quickly. We'll start with uh, the first question, which is, who's the serpent? Well, the serpent, we're told, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And uh, other parts of Scripture, and probably notably down in Revelation, uh, Satan is spoken of as the serpent. And we recognize from uh, the rest of the Bible that that is exactly what is happening here. We have uh, Satan coming and uh, uh, tempting uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, now, we, we've spoken about the reality of evil, that Adam and Eve would have known about that reality, would have been seeking to protect the creation that they were stewards over from it. And here is uh, this serpent, more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Not made then. Not made as a wild animal. Uh, different, separate, unique we don't know a great deal about him at this stage. Uh, we don't know why he took this form or what it meant for him to take this form, this animalistic form, but he does. And um, he, uh, we regard him uh, scripturally and, and biblically as a fallen angel. It's one who was in God's presence, who previously had... Uh, God's love and attention and closeness, but who himself uh, rebelled against that and uh, mysteriously through that introduced, our evil was introduced and rebellion was introduced into this universe. He had wisdom, he had guile, he had enchantment, he had attractiveness, and uh, he is, comes in the form of, and uh, we don't, again, don't know much about this, one of the wild animals. Does that remind us that in that early creation there was wild animals as well as tame animals, domesticated animals? And what did their wildness consist in this perfect universe? We don't really know. But there was different species and types and categories uh, and cultures of animals um, some would have been possibly much uh, more, as we would regard it, domesticated. Some may not have been. But that is what we're told, the form that he took. Second question is, why did he go to Eve? We're told that he uh, spoke to the woman and he questioned her. Why did he do that? There's no real answers given to that question. Uh, but there may be some reasons uh, for it. It may have been that he chose, and the reason I'm, I'm asking that question is because uh, there may be some principles that we can take out of that in terms of temptation for ourselves and the dangers that are involved. It may have been that Adam himself was more guarded than Eve, having been given this uh, leadership, uh, headship role and stewardship, may he have been more aware of what was happening um, the prohibition that God gave that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of the 
of good and evil was given to him. And you know how it is, don't you? When you're given a prohibition by someone, sometimes you're more aware of it than the next person is. And sometimes the next person is more able to break that than you are because you, you've seen it firsthand. You've, you've received it firsthand. It may have been something to do that. He was less immediate at that level to the prohibition, possibly. It could have been that Adam himself had more intimate knowledge of the wild animals, having been among them, having named them, having been part of uh, their uh, uh, community, as it were. It may have been that Satan was deliberately choosing to usurp God's order and choosing to uh, immediately uh, move away from speaking to Adam, who is the head of that marriage, the relationship, relational head, as we saw this morning, and speaking to Eve instead. And possibly more than anything, he probably recognized that Eve would be more persuasive and speaking to Adam than he would be. So we see subtlety and wisdom and temptation and uh, guile in what he was doing. Well, what does he say? The third question, what did he say? Well, he asked a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And then he goes on uh, to say, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He uses uh, deception and he el elicits a sense of desire from her. He questions God's word. You know, we've seen this before, haven't we? In, this, in a sense, the principles of temptation that he comes to. He questions God right from the beginning. That's what he does. He questions God. Well, is that really... Did did God, did God say that? Are you sure? Did you hear him right? Oh, your hearing's perfect. Okay, you must have it. But is that what he said? You sure? Does Adam pass it on right? Is that? And he begins to question what God says. And then he kind of dis, distorts the whole reality of, of what God says and, and, and the reality of, of what God has done for them. He questions God's goodness and God's generosity and, and God's reasonableness. He says, you know, you don't, you're, you're not going to die when this happens. No, God's wrong. He's, he's questioning God's honesty. You know, and he said, no, he's, God is hiding this from you. He doesn't want you to have this because he knows when you have this, you'll be just like him. That's what it will be like. And God's deceptive. He's keeping you from this amazing reality and experience of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll not die. He questions uh, God's honesty. He makes God out to be a liar. Invites her to abandon trust in him and offers her something she doesn't have. A knowledge of good and evil. Doesn't have that. God has that. God has that and he's able to hold that intention. He's able to keep that knowledge and still be perfect. She doesn't have that. And uh, he's in a sense, he's saying, look, you can cross that boundary. You too can be like God. You too can be like God. You can have that knowledge. You can be independent. You don't need God over you. He's made this, but he's keeping this from you. And he's twisting and turning and uh, confusing and uh, uh, questioning all of this honest and pure relationship that they have with God. Fourth question is, 
What did Adam and Eve do? And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took it and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So they entered into this astonishingly destructive choice of rebelling against God. Uh, Eve wavered, didn't she? She entered into dialogue with this uh, satanic serpent-type figure. She herself distorted God's word, didn't she? After uh, he questioned uh, her about what God was going to do, she said, well, um, you must not eat the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That, that, that was right. Then, then uh, she said, and you must not touch it. Well, there's no record of that. There's no record of God making that prohibition that you mustn't touch it. She was making the prohibition out bigger and, and worse than it was. God didn't say you mustn't touch it. Well, certainly it's not recorded for us in the previous chapter, just that you mustn't eat of it. But she said, mustn't eat of it. He's not even allowing us to touch it. Making out God to be something worse than he was. She's wavering. She's already herself beginning to add to God's word and uh, take away from what God is wanting them to be. And critically she gives in to what he says seeing that this tree was good for food pleasing to the eye which presumably she knew anyway but was now desirable also for gaining wisdom she took it and ate it now this is hugely significant and we remember Adam is fully compliant and complicit in this as well he himself saw, he was with her, he liked, he craved, he, he allowed his role to be abrogated, he forgot uh, God, and they conspired together. Now people will say, of course, my word, this is a huge consequence for choosing to eat an apple or something like that. As if it's some insignificant thing that, you know, we might associate ourselves doing as children in the back garden or the neighbor's back garden as I used to do. Climb the wall of the garden into the next door neighbor's tree and steal his pears from the tree because they were sweet and good. Much better than the rotten, hard, bullet-like pears that were in our garden in the manse. He lovely big juicy pears in his garden. It wasn't that funny. But we, we associate it with that. We associate the, the fall of humanity with this trivial little taking of a, of, of, of a piece of fruit from a tree. What, what a fable that is! What a ridiculous fable! But there's so much unsaid here. There's so much that is not noted. There's so much that we choose to ignore and we allow to become fable. Because here, this isn't like the little boy or girl that, that steals something and puts it in their pocket. What we have here is a state of being where humanity, as it was created by God, was in this gloriously perfect, good, and beautiful relationship with God where everything was provided. Everything is yours, God said. Everything is yours. And there was this really perfect relationship. No death, no decay, no old, uh, growing old and, and decrepit and, and 
painful and illness and all that went with that. A glorious universe in which there was this perfect relationship. And this was the test of that relationship. Whether they were willing to allow God to be God and they were willing to remain as created beings as ones that God says himself he had made from the dust. Were they willing or were they going to be challenged and given and respond to the reality of evil that they knew was there and rebel against God utterly and powerfully and catastrophically rebelling against God as, the, the, uh, as Adam was the representative head of humanity. And we know the significance of that, don't we? And I presume that they began and, and had some kind of understanding of the significance of that. Because not only were they made in God's image, but they recognized and knew that they themselves would be image bearers to all humanity from them, of which we're a part. So we bear that rebellious and broken image, and we ourselves become rebels. Hugely significant event mentioned so briefly albeit but hugely significant and there's, there's, there's a universe of untold reality behind this about the importance and the brutality and the greed and the awfulness of what they did it's, the other thing is it's not like our temptation because when we're tempted there's this, there's this temptation comes and hooks us and it's easy for temptation because we're sinners, albeit grace touched and forgiven by God. We're sinners if we are grace touched. And if not, we remain separated from Him. Uh, but we can't do anything but give in to temptation uh, unless we come to Christ and know His power and resource. That was not the case Adam and Eve. That was not the case. Temptation for them was hugely different from what it is for us. And I don't know exactly what it means. In the same way, I don't know exactly what temptation meant for Jesus. Because Jesus also is not like one of us at that level. But there was the possibility of giving in to temptation. But there was also, unlike us, the possibility of rejecting temptation. And probably, although it's unstated, a, a probationary period after which they would be able to eat from the tree, not of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life, and live eternally free from the temptations of uh, Satan and uh, his uh, wiles. But they chose not to do that. And my fifth question on this passage is, what immediately happened? What immediately happened? Well, there was a half-truth, wasn't there? Was the devil given a half-truth? You shall not surely die. Well, that's right. They didn't immediately die, physically, at that point. But they did immediately die, spiritually. Their relationship with God from that moment was broken. It was spiritual death entered into the world. And there was a stunning, stunning anticlimax. Stunning. This knowledge of good and evil was the most 
anticlimactic knowledge in the history of humanity. All they really recognized was that they were naked. They covered themselves. And then they felt shame in their relationship with God. It was a new experience. They hadn't had that before. They'd never felt the need to hide from themselves, cover themselves, or more importantly, hide from God. They are all of a sudden uneasy about themselves, uneasy about their relationship with God. There's nothing but a raw physicality to confront them and the guilt of knowing, immediately knowing, having heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the cool of the day, they hid from him. And that's hugely symbolic, hugely significant, hugely important. They sensed his judgment as they'd never sensed it before. Uh, tragic loss of innocence, of life, of relationship, of purity, of goodness, of perfection, of eternity, of all these things. They couldn't have been better off than they were in that original condition. They didn't need to give in, but they chose to give in to temptation and as the representative heads of humanity uh, entered, allowed sin to enter into the human race, which has been the core of a broken and cursed and miserable and death-filled experience for humanity. That's why this is important. As image bearers, we experience all the rottenness of what transpired in these uh, events. Which is why Jesus is absolutely stunning. It's astonishing that from even this and before the creation of the world, this reality which fills us with mystery and with unanswered questions and yet in its simplicity it makes things clear for us. It's why Jesus Christ is so incredible we, we, aren't, we haven't even read about this promise of uh, the Lord the Redeemer God who in giving this story to Moses and his people is reminding them that he's redeeming them even from this point he's redeeming them and he's going to send the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and his, he, his heel will be bruised astonishing because that therefore still impacts on your life and on mine because we are sons and daughters of Adam. That's who we are. And we have that same need of a Redeemer as they did. And He's the only Redeemer. And it's, you know, it's big stuff, isn't it? In our small and significant lives that He loves us so much that He's gone to this extent in order to buy us back and to give us a future and to ultimately introduce us into this new heavens and the new earth. It's a perspective we need to recapture. We're just so befuddled with today and with my life and with my needs. And he's saying, take a, just take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Look at what I've revealed and expressed 
about beginnings. Just listen to the black box for a moment and hear about why the great crash happened and what it's, the devastation that has happened and what has resulted in it. And remind ourselves of the glory of Jesus. And can I just say one or two things, just as I close, about um, one or two principles. I know it's dangerous to take principles from this because it's quite unique. And as I've said, Adam's temptation, Christ's temptation is different from our temptation. But I still think there's one or two principles we can take and apply carefully to our own lives. We remember, uh, however Satan appeared, I don't know how, what he looked like or, or whether he was attractive to Eve or, or what. Uh, she certainly was caught off guard with him. And uh, we need to remember that in our own lives in Second Corinthians 11 uh, and verse 14 we remember um, when he's speaking about false apostles. Now this takes us right into the church, okay, right into our Christian lives and to church community. And he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of, apostles of Christ. Okay? And no wonder, he says, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Is that not the most solemn thing you've ever heard? That Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And uh, he comes very often as the voice of reason. Plausible, attractive, sometimes even spiritual. But he hates you. And he wants to drive you to the pit of destruction. That's his task. That's his role. But he comes as an angel of light. So church and knowledge Bible insight he has them all the truth knows it back to front he'll argue you upside down with the truth he knows it and that's how he comes and we are asked as Christians to be on our guard spiritually against his wiles and against his attacks so you say, well, that's, that's very depressing. <laughs> he knows the truth. Sometimes comes as an angel of light. If he comes like an apostle of Christ, well, what hope have I of understanding him? What's the temptation he will always bring? His temptation will always be to drive you away from your relationship with Christ, from God. That is what will set him apart. Anything that comes that questions God's grace and drives you from God's grace and from his word and from his worthiness that tempts us to consider God as a liar, a cheat, uh, or untrustworthy comes from the pit of hell. Now, it's not against questions. It's not saying that we need to be foolishly and, and blindly accepting it. There's nothing wrong with questions. But we need to be wise in recognizing the difference between questions that will drive us uh, to greater faith or at least to submission to Christ, recognizing there are not answers to all that we would love answers to. And those that drive us away from his love and his forgiveness and his grace 
and his joy. So what is it in your life? Anything that drives you away from Jesus Christ, be very careful about getting into bed with it. Be very careful about getting into bed with anything, any argument, any way of life, any relationship that takes you away from the love of Jesus. That is our only hope. He is our only way. And uh, his grace is our only uh, choice. And we need to beware like... uh, Uh, we learn from Eve the danger of distorting God's word, adding to it as she did making God more more of a prohibitionist than he was, sometimes taking away from it we need to beware of wanting instant gratification as she wanted and Adam wanted we need to sometimes beware about reasoning with the devil and uh, with temptation and sometimes be like Joseph who when he was tempted to sleep with Potiphar's wife and she uh, appeared ravenously beautiful to him and offered her body to him he simply ran away there was no reasoning with it there was no sitting down and discussing he simply ran and there's times when we need to respond in the same way uh, with the evil one and with his temptations and we need to always remember the consequences. You know that, don't you, in your own life? I certainly do in mine. Consequences of giving in to temptation are always hugely anticlimactic. Or maybe great for a day or two. But being tempted to cheat on your wife, being tempted to cheat on the tax man, being tempted to... Uh, do things that you know God doesn't want you to do because he loves you can be very attractive very pleasing to the eye but hugely anti-climactic and lead us into a relationship of shame with our God and he loves us and he doesn't want us to be in a relationship of shame with him that's why he sent Jesus it's a spiritual matter and so he requires of us, which is why we sung these psalms about confession. The import, when did you last confess your sins to the living God? And I don't mean the generic, and forgive all my sins, amen, at the end of a grace or the end of a prayer. I mean, when we were honestly aware of our failure before him, uh, giving in to temptation, uh, choosing um, the sweet... Uh, sinful desires which we all know are sweet and sinful and attractive if there was no attraction to them they wouldn't they wouldn't be it wasn't a thorn bush that that, that, that Eve was tempted to, to try and get a rotten sour gooseberry from it was something that was attractive and beautiful and pleasing to the eye and that's what it is isn't it for us that's what it is don't we don't don't sit piously and think well oh, I don't give in to temptation because of course we do and of course we're tempted by it. And, but the reality in Christ is that we've got the Holy Spirit and the power of God to take us back to, in a sense, I think there's differences, but to take us back where Adam and Eve were, where they could have said no. Now until we come to Christ, we can't say no. We can't please God. We can't do right. 
Sabbath observance, going to church, being moral, it's worthless. Unless we're in Christ. But in Christ and with the power of the Spirit, we can have the right motive for saying no. And motive is because, Lord, we love you. And because you're worthy. And because we can take a step back and we can consider uh, the consequences of choosing to rebel against you. And I guess, in conclusion, it's a reminder just of uh, high-handed sin. Do be very careful about that. We all sin. We all sin all the time. We all need forgiveness, 70 times 7. Sometimes we need forgiveness so much we're afraid to ask for it. But sometimes we need forgiveness so much we need to ask for it. I mean, say, Lord, give me back the years the locusts have eaten because I've messed up everything. But beware of high-handed sin where we go into sin deliberately say, yeah, I know this is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. And I know God will forgive me. All I can say, that's a really dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous place to be. And uh, don't mess with that. And, and don't allow it to become a, a mentality. You know, I sin all the more so that grace be abound. May it never be. May it never be. And th- because it's a misunderstanding of all of grace. So may it never be. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, we ask and pray that it might never be that we, because we know we do it, that we would sin high-handedly. May we never treat sin lightly and think it's insignificant and unimportant. May we remind ourselves as Christians how the great cost to set us free, the, the amazing cost of God becoming man and living that life and then dying on the cross and facing Satan and all his power and all his raging evil uh, on that tree. And may we really sit down and meditate on that and think about it and remind ourselves that that is an unbelievable cost that someone would do that for me. And may it transform our lives because there's nothing else that will. And we know there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with you. And that the awfulness of what happened at the beginning has gone through the centuries and is only corrected in Jesus. May we not sin high-handedly. May we also not think sin doesn't matter. May we not shrug our, may we not shrug our shoulders and, and say, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm redeemed anyway. May grace not be cheap for us. Uh, but Lord, help it to be something that we treasure and value. May we not be grudging Christians. May we not do your will unhappily, but really always looking over our shoulder and wanting to be rebellious, wanting to sin, wanting to do all the wrong things. Forgive us when that's so often our attitude, when it's so often the way we live, with a grudging grace and uh, dragging our feet spiritually. Rather, Lord, give us that great sense of joy and wholeness and healing and beauty uh, in that relationship with you. Forgive us when we don't see. Open our eyes to see and fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.